Hey, it's your old pal Hanky here. Sorry we've been away for a while. It's been kind of busy getting caught up with other business that I have to attend to. Um, those who follow the blog will know that not only do I write the blog, I do some media work as well as uh, marketing consulting for a few brands. And in addition, I represent a few brands here in North America. So it's been um, a pretty long chase to get caught up after a very busy and I believe, at least for us, fairly successful Basel world. So welcome back to the pod. Um, as per usual, just be prepared. There's going to be a little bit of blue language in today's episode, but I think you're going to enjoy it. So hang in there. We'll talk to you soon. One from me, one from my homies. Okay, we're trying something new on the pod. Um, got some feedback, which was pretty valuable, about length. And uh, safe to say that, yes, a lot of the casts that we put out there have been pretty verbose. They've gone way over. So we're going to try a new idea. We're going to try and keep the entire pod episode down to no more than 15 minutes. So the idea is you can get in and get out and get on with your day. Today's topic is about brands that have come and gone and what that really means overall to the industry. And today I'm going to be taking um, a small, small American brand that had large aspirations, and I'm going to take uh, an independent Swedish-based uh, connected watch that, again, had big aspirations, um, came into the came into the watch world with a big bang, and kind of limped out with a whimper. So we're going to be hitting up on those two topics today. In addition, there are going to be some parallel things about some bigger players in the industry that, believe it or not, are connected to at least one of these brands. So having said that, um, there every year there are brands that come and go. And the only thing that keeps a lot of the bigger brands going is a constant injection of cash from people who get talked into um, into investing and for I think for a lot of people, especially people who've been successful in other lines of work, who are currently successful, who have a good amount of money, owning or being a part owner in a watch brand, especially if you're into watches, is a pretty big ego stroke, and it's it's understandable. I think it's not unlike the the Russian oligarch who wants to own a a British soccer team in the Premier League. It's a great um, a great way to kind of feed your interest in it at the same time maybe put some money into an area that you can afford to lose in some instances. So, you know, first out of the shoot, I'd like to talk about Nile watches. And Nile watches, um, you can Google it at this point, but if you try to go to the website, you're going to have a hard time pulling any information of much note. Um, Nile watches was the brainchild of one guy uh, who had been successful in some other lines of business and he kind of birthed this watch almost from nothing. And, and by that, I mean that it kind of burst onto the scene without a whole lot of buildup. Uh, he had no experience in the watch industry in terms of actually working within it. Now, in fairness, he, by all reports, was interested in it. He was interested in watches, and he felt that he could produce a made-in-America watch that would be something to rival what could be found out there in the luxury market. Now, that in and of itself is a noble aspiration. Um, the challenges that he faced were pretty numerous. 
perhaps the biggest one was a lack of understanding about what the actual customer base was going to be, what actual operating costs would need to be, what realistic margins were going to be. And we could go on and on and on about missteps, and there were plenty. He um, had some early success with his watch, but unfortunately, it was fairly short. And if we go to uh, a gentleman who has been on a guest of the pod, he actually took a piece of what I had written, and I thought this was, you know, I wrote it so fair enough that I'm, you know, my ego's in a little bit, but I think it was pretty accurate. So the long and the short of it is that um, the company just wasn't sustainable. It would be nice to say that it was any one thing, but I think it was a combination of a lot of little mistakes that when they piled up really became overwhelming for the owner. And the owner had brought in a fairly large amount of outside investment. Uh, He had basically stated that yes, the watch was completely made in America. Some of that got debunked. He then, um, you know, had to make some adjustments because of the movement that he was using was Swiss. And if there is, you know, any one lesson to pull away from this, it is that you got to be, you got to be managing something like a watch brand unbelievably aggressively, number one. And number two, you have to punch your weight, which is a old maximum of Tempest Fujit and definitely with a lot of the brands that I consult with. But it's really true because as Barry Hearn has said, you can't make a baby into a teenager overnight. It takes time and things develop. And I think that the founder of Nile had a belief that if he threw enough money and enough hyperbole and talked about it hard enough and fast enough and if things went his way, that suddenly this would be a brand to rival uh, several of the Swiss watches that he had admired. Nothing wrong with having big dreams, but keeping in mind that if you're the only one paying the price for when those go south, you can take that risk. But as happened with this particular company, unfortunately, there were several people along for the ride, employees and not to mention investors. And it was... I wouldn't say completely surprising to some of us because for a lot of us, we look at this stuff and I I have a good friend in Switzerland. His name is Rod Hess and, and he and I bat back ideas back and forth pretty regularly. And it's a very different thing when you're talking about a very, very large, very established Swiss or German. I mean, it's it's not really a question of origin, but the point being is that the brand has been around long enough that the it's not easy to see the seams or the vulnerabilities that really exist because the majority of them can be solved with a cash injection. And again, when we're talking about a marquee name, like say Eterna, it's very easy to attract investment on the belief that things can return to their former greatness. Now, when you're a brand new company or a brand new watch brand specifically, based in North America, you don't really have that track record to go back on. So to some extent, it is a pig and a poke. And unfortunately, what happened for Nile is that they continued to bring in investors, continued to try to present a reality that maybe wasn't 100% accurate to what was going on. And I can only say this based on information that's available to the public. 
uh, Mike Wilson, the owner, was never interviewed by myself, um, and I don't really have a, a full understanding. What I do know is that um, a designer out there helped him create the design for the watch, that he sourced Eterna Movements, that he was very visible, very public, very... Um, I don't want to say aggressive because that sounds negative, but he was he was definitely very active in the brand and trying to promote it. What I'm not sure that he fully understood was a how many Nile Watch company customers were really out there. Number two, how readily that customer was going to come up and part with three to four thousand dollars compared to what else they could purchase for the same amount of money. Now those are you know those are kind of neither here nor there. Lastly, then, I think hubris really did him in, in the end. Uh, there was a desire to have a standalone Nile boutique, first in one mall, then in another. Um, I'm no expert on Kansas or Missouri real estate and particularly business rentals in the retail market, but I'm guessing that it wasn't an inexpensive proposition. And in the end, at least as near as any of us can understand it, the investors got tired of pumping money in. They felt like it was going down the drain and they pulled the plug. And I think what's telling, and it's unfortunate for the customers, is that it wasn't a case of we're winding up the company, we appreciate your support, and we're going to stand by and warrant these watches, and you know we, we appreciate you being a part of it. What really came out was, yes, we appreciate your business. We were, we were a great brand. And P.S., if you need help, we'd recommend this jeweler. Uh, so in essence, it was a little bit like if you need some help, you're on your own. I'm not, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that that's how it is. For all I know, warranty issues are being taken care of. But the impression that most of us got was a little bit like, you know, rolling up to your favorite restaurant and suddenly it's empty. The lights are off and all the fixtures have been stripped out. Now, by my understanding, Mr. Wilson has moved on to other entrepreneurial ventures, and fair enough, and we certainly wish him success in whatever he chooses to go out and do from here on out. Which then brings us to a different type of, I, I'm sorry, but I have to be honest, failure, and that was the Swedish brand Cronaby. And Cronaby is pretty near and dear to my heart, as I had met with and followed them from their very first Basel World when they actually didn't even have a watch to show. It was more, here was a prototype, but no pictures. Don't write about it. Met the people. They were nice. Stayed in touch through the next year. And in fact, they invited me out to Malmo, Sweden to cover their launch, which was a wonderful opportunity. And I could be wrong, but I think I'm the person who traveled the farthest. Um, a little side note for those of you looking for a good getaway, if you can afford the ticket to get to Malmo, I, I highly recommend it. It was amazing. Beautiful city. Um, it is not too far away from where uh, Volander, uh, the Swedish detective series, is based. Um, and having said that, the people at the people at the company were wonderful, very lovely people. But there was one, one I guess sort of vibe that was running through and the vibe was very much and it was very much shared by let's say the four principles and these were the four main uh, entities within the company and that was essentially that we we know everything that we're doing everything is going to be great we don't really want or need any feedback or advice now again it's their company and their right to make those decisions 
From the outset, what became pretty clear was that it was a watch very much long on style and design, which is great. Um, the functionality of the watch was not, unfortunately, unlike a lot of the other functionality you would find in watches that were made and marketed for far less money and available to the mainstream. That, again, is not a dig at the company. I think they kind of went with what they thought was a good model. They then made a few bad decisions in terms of distribution and how it was going to go. They popped up here in North America after about a year, year and a half, maybe closer to a year. But the point being, it was um, it was not embraced, I think, with the fervor that they were hoping. And in the end, um, it was, again, another very short notice of, oh, P.S., we've gone into receivership, you know, in essence, that they had to declare formal bankruptcy um, in Sweden. And this was followed by speculation of what would happen next. And I know that there were several, I know of a few people who were working, uh, trying to connect them with buyers. And in the end, I don't think that a buyer, obviously a buyer didn't come in time before the bankruptcy hearing. And then lo and behold, uh, Festina Group went in and they basically purchased the uh, intellectual property and essentially took on four people from the IT department. And unfortunately, everybody else got let go. So although the press releases said warm glowing things about we're thrilled to find a wonderful partner like Festina, you know, they are about as much a partner in that as the steak that you buy at the grocery store is a partner in your meal. Um, you know, it in essence, it was it was something that was picked up. Uh, none of, to the best of my knowledge, none of the four people were held um, or asked to be asked to stay on by the company as it moved forward. And they're all out, um, I'm assuming, punching up their CVs looking for something else to do. Now, again, the real tragedy in all of this, you know, you could say, oh, the poor Chinese investors. Well, these Chinese investors had more money than God, number one. Number two, they are an incredibly advanced um, IT and tech company in general. And they'd pumped in plenty of money before. Uh, Cronaby's statement uh, just prior to their filing or at the time of their filing was, oh, we only needed a little bit more and we were going to be profitable. And what's really telling in all of that is that this is a very experienced, very savvy company that's pumping in the money. Uh, and if they don't see the value in that technology anymore to the point where they're really, they're ready, willing, and able to just cut off the spigot and let the thing die on the vine, that should tell you something. And really what it says is that they didn't feel like it was viable anymore. So those are unfortunately two brands that popped up. They had some interesting things and they kind of flamed out rather ignominiously. But hang in there because we're going to talk in the next little smaller segment about another company, a big one, a big one that's been around for years and years and years that has managed to stay afloat and maybe what might be in store for it. So stay tuned. Sleeping Beauty. So those tuning in late, or maybe more accurately to say those who started getting into watches more recently, probably have never heard of Daniel Jean Richard, or as it was later known as Jean Richard. This was a, a brand that was birthed by... Um, Mr. Macaloso, I will always refer to him as Mr. Macaloso because I feel that he earns that stature. 
he was the man who, in a sense, rebirthed Gerard Perigo. And and despite where Gerard Perigo is right now, how well or poorly it has done, and it's done both, um, he did a lot for the industry. He did a lot for both of those brands. But Jean Richard was definitely what we call um, a Sleeping Beauty brand. In essence, that it's still in business, but it is essentially been put into an induced coma, as near as anybody can see. Um, no one goes in, no one goes out, a little bit like Wonka's factory. Uh, essentially, there are watches that can be picked up on the cheap in the gray market. So if you're looking for a very well-made, beautiful watch for not a whole lot of pocket money, um, you might want to check it out. Having said those things, let's kind of loop back to a brand that I mentioned earlier and one that actually, believe it or not, has has a connection, uh, has a connection to the Nile watch brand, has a connection to some other micro brands in North America, and that's Eterna. Now, Eterna is, if I have to be very honest, Eterna for me is like that really glamorous, um, exotic, exotic person that you dated in university that uh, was beguiling and wild and kept your heart racing and would borrow your car and basically drive it off a cliff. Um, you know, it's it's that kind of an emotional roller coaster for me, at least, which sounds kind of silly because we're just talking about watches. But I think for some of us, and especially those of us who, who cover these things, and especially when we spend our own money to do it sometimes, we get to a point where we, we really hone in and we follow what we like and we we really do get absorbed in the story and trying to, in a sense, root for for our, the home team. And for me, that was Eterna. The, the brief synopsis is this, that Eterna is a very old brand based in Gretchen. I visited the factory. It's beautiful. Uh, I visited that factory... A while ago, and I want to say that it was maybe 2012, and we're now in 2019. Even in 2012, uh, I believe that is when um, the Chinese owners had taken over, but that might have been 2013. Um, and even if it was 2013, the point of this is that what was very disheartening to see was that there was actually no real watchmaking going on in the facility. Um, when speaking to someone who was then pretty much the fifth de facto CEO in about a three-year stint, was that yeah we don't we don't assemble anything here anymore except for movements. Uh, we use we use assembly houses to put them together, which was very tragic. If you ever get a chance, if they ever get back up and running, um, take a tour because <laughs> it's it's a beautiful building. It's wonderful. And it speaks to all that I think for a lot of us is beguiling about the Swiss industry. Unfortunately, it is to this extent a very much a Potemkin village. It's a grand facade, but there's nothing really going on there. Um, what's going on with Eterna right now? They were bought by City Champ some time ago. City Champ is essentially, well, not even essentially, City Champ is a Chinese company. They have a great deal of success in the retail industry, the retail market in China. They dipped their toe in the water and they bought Rotary, they bought Eterna, they bought Quorum all at the same time. They made a few catastrophically bad decisions about uh, leadership 
And one of them was a gentleman who had been an owner of the previous company they purchased um, and, uh, you know, and essentially set him up to run the company, which he then essentially ran into the ground. They hired a few others and it, it never really panned out. Um, Eterna essentially could be known for the Contiki and in more recent times they could be known for their movements. Uh, it's a beautiful movement. It's a modular movement. It offers a lot of flexibility. Unfortunately, because it is produced in such small numbers, it is very difficult to do to scale. Hence, the prices are exorbitant. And beyond that, then the problems are that unlike a, an Edda or even a clone, it's next to impossible to work on it. So what I've seen happening with Eterna is... Literally a carousel, uh, I, I think is uh, Gregory Pons, who does business mantra. And if you speak French and if you have the disposable income, definitely subscribe to his his blog, uh, Business Mantra, because it's amazingly good. Uh, what he calls musical chairs, and I think that's a very apt way to put it, that you know you, you get drafted in to be the CEO of Eterna or Quorum, and you might as well just go ahead and start getting your CV ready. Because you're not going to be there too, too long. Uh, moving forward, where we're at now is that Eterna has no press information coming out. They have updated with a couple of new Contikis, which I'm very honest are so ugly that they hurt my feelings just looking at them. They still have pieces from their vintage collection, 1973 Contiki, of which I'm a proud owner, by the way. It's a beautiful watch still in the collection and that was a limited edition of not a whole lot of pieces which is still curious to relate very much available uh and very thick on the ground so eterna as as near as any of us can see is there in name only the brand still exists where the tie-in is is that nile um had opted to use an eterna movement because it was sexy which, again, it's sort of understandable. You want to have something that separates your brand from everybody else. A couple of other brands in North America tried it. And that was a big piece of their marketing, uh, marketing and sales strategy was, well, this is a right market. We can get, you know, we can get these micro brands. They're going to want something special. And I, and I think that was wise. That was not necessarily a bad idea. Unfortunately, micro brands tend to have a lot of stillbirths and... For several of these brands, a few made it through, a few didn't. One is um, hopefully going to come through unscathed. No names, but the point being, it's it's again a challenging proposition to to use this movement because now you have no support, you have no after sales support, you have a difficult time reaching anybody in the company. And if the word around the campfire is accurate, the most senior person at the movement company uh, sent a peace out message to pretty much everybody in the company's communication system, letting them know that he had resigned and moving on to better things. So it's, it's hard to know what's going to be next. Here's what I can tell you is that no one's answering email communications over there. To the best of my knowledge, there's no new product being released, even though there were a few new products that were birthed. There's no communication about it. And this is not a small little startup. This is not even a smallish startup with a truckload of big-ass money coming from China to support it. 
This is a very, very old Swiss brand that has been traded not unlike a baseball card in recent years, but still has a lot of potential. So where I want to wrap this up, you know, we, we started this little segment saying Sleeping Beauty, but guess what? Prince Charming came along and planted one on Sleeping Beauty and she came back to life. And maybe I am romantic about these things and it's hard not to be romantic about a beautiful watch and a beautiful story and wonderful people who maybe work for that brand. And I, I would say that there are a couple of folks at Eterna who I have a lot of lot of affection for who I think are just wonderful people. I would love to see, even though they're gone, I would love to see Eterna do something. I would love to see it come back. And Eterna can be saved. Eterna can be saved by, number one, hiring someone from the Billy Bean slash Moneyball school of watch management. I happen to know somebody quite well who may or may not be available. You never know. Uh, who could absolutely turn it around because he would park his ego at the door. He would look at numbers. He would be pragmatic. He would make decisions that were for the good of the company, not necessarily for the good of his pocketbook. And he could fix it. Number two, people still love the Contiki. They would buy it. They would be absolutely falling over themselves if there were a consistent, not so schizophrenic brand offering. Number three, it's about people. And there are some good people now within Eterna. But it's really going to be a question of changing that company culture because at this moment, Eterna is a cursed company. I'm sorry, but it is. There's a black cloud hanging over that building in Grenchen, and it's fixable. But it's not, again, to quote Barry Hearn, it's not going to happen overnight. We are not going to take a nearly dead brand and flip it into the next Hublot in a 36 month window. It's going to take some time. It will take some investment, but it's going to take smart investment, not crazy investment. It's not lavish investment. The movements, believe it or not, are good. They're well-designed. They're beautiful, but then it's going to take some quality control. It's going to take some understanding about scaling and actually what it's going to really take to sell those movements to a mass market, not just to a niche group. They are beautiful, they are wonderful, they are amazing movements, but they are like Frank Lloyd Wright buildings at the moment. Um, they've got a lot of quirky little flaws, and part of that is the newness of the movement and the newness of the technology. It takes time to build up beyond that. You need years of experience. That is why Ed has been at it for as long as they have been. When you get into these esoteric, smaller production movements, you're going to have these types of problems. But what Eterna needs to understand is that, therefore, to make these movements work, <coughs> excuse me, they have to make more of them and they have to have more of a track record and they have to invest the money and be willing to stay the course. So where does that leave us moving forward? Well, you know, we have a few, a few little brands and it's actually, I only picked two brands. There are a lot of brands that came and went this year. And Part of that is the natural evolution. If we were to look at it more pragmatically, we could compare it to the restaurant industry, which again was also very much an ego-driven business back in the 80s, 90s, and even today. Um, restaurants fail at a phenomenal rate. Microbrands are starting to fail at a phenomenal rate. And even big boy watch brands are going to start failing because more and more the people who could be counted on in the past to dig into their pockets and spend the money are realizing that there are better places for them to put it. 
So we're gonna wait and we're gonna see. We're gonna hope for smooth sailing, but we're gonna live in the real world. And until then, Tempest Fujit.